Please keep your Bibles open there in Philippians chapter 4. And if you haven't on the way in, availed yourself of one of the sermon uh, handouts and the pens that we have there, please feel free to to do so. I um, trust that that will probably be helpful for you as we work through God's Word today. I think it's fair to say, though, as we gather together this morning, that our world is a pretty anxious place right now. There's a lot of worry about, about our health, the risk of catching COVID. If you've watched the news this week, you'll know that it's been filled with anxiety about COVID variants and whether our vaccines will protect us. If you listen to CoronaCast, the ABC's coronavirus podcast like I do, you know that there's been an omnicronometer, try to say that five times fast, at the end of the episode each week to measure the the scale of anxiety that we should have. We're worried about our kids and the impact of the last two years on them. There's anxiety about the economy and mounting debt. Anxiety about politics and government policies that might affect us. Our society is anxious. And it's no surprise, really, is it, that in light of that, we've seen more protests, more heated online debates, more fractures in families and churches, even, in the last two years than we've seen for many decades before. And all of this, of course, that I've just described is on on top of the the very real and normal anxieties of life. Uncertainty at work. Unsure if you're going to be made redundant or not. Is enough income coming in to cover seemingly mounting expenses? You've got that social event coming up next weekend and you're not going to know anyone. You've got an appointment with your doctor this coming week and he's going to reveal some test results to you and you're not sure what he's going to say. You see, the uncertainty of our world, coupled with the reality of our own helplessness, is a recipe for anxiety. And so in God's providence, it's quite timely, I think, that we're coming this morning to this section of Philippians, where the Apostle Paul speaks about anxiety and how we're to respond to it. Now, whilst Our circumstances today, what I've just described to you, might seem like a world away from first century Philippi. We might be tempted to think that their world was much simpler and a less anxious time than ours. When we actually delve into their circumstances, we see that they had a bit to be anxious about too. Don't forget the the Apostle Paul, the man who had brought the gospel to them in Philippi, was now in jail, preparing to face trial for preaching Jesus. It seemed likely that he'd be executed by Emperor Nero. And they too lived in a Roman city. That's been a theme of this book. And if Paul was about to be executed for following Jesus, would they too soon face the same fate? They had a bit to be anxious about which makes Paul's words to them and to us here in this passage this morning all the more remarkable. Because here 
without qualification, without nuance, as clear as day, Paul says ever so simply, don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about your situation. Don't worry about mine. Don't be anxious. No, rejoice. Don't be anxious, Paul says. But rejoice. Always. It's a command that cuts across the grain of our world and our own hearts, doesn't it? Paul's not being flippant here. I don't want you to think that this morning. He's, he's not offering us a glib catchphrase, don't worry, be happy, and then tell them to go suck it up, to go drink some cement and move on. No, what he does here in our passage today is he shows us how to do this. He gives us four key practical steps to real lasting joy even in anxious times. But friends, before we get stuck into the passage today, there's a really important distinction, a really important clarification we need to make about anxiety. And I really want want to encourage you to, to hear what I'm about to say now. Because friends, there is a very real difference between medically diagnosed clinical anxiety and the normal worries and fears of life. Let me explain. Clinical anxiety is a medical condition where someone experiences intense, persistent anxiety that interferes with their daily functioning. It can manifest itself in things like panic disorder, social phobia, generalized anxiety disorder, amongst others. And friends, as followers of Jesus, we experience ill mental health as much as anyone else. But friends, please understand and please hear this. When I use the term worry or anxiety this morning, it's not, it is not clinical anxiety that I am speaking about. Clinical anxiety requires medical assistance, the the common grace of psychologists and medication and doctors. And so I want to encourage you this morning. Perhaps you've never heard this in church before, but if you're experiencing mental ill health of any kind, you don't need to suffer in silence. You don't need to pretend that you're okay because you're a Christian. Let me encourage you to take that first step and see your GP. That's a really good place to start. We Christians experience mental ill health as much as anyone else. So please hear, the anxiety that I'm talking about this morning is not clinical anxiety. It's the normal worries and fears and concerns of life. Is that that clear? I want us all to be on the same page on this. Okay, with that as our foundation, let's take a look now at Paul's prescription for peace. How we can have joy even in anxious times. And the first is there in verses 2 and 3. Resolve your differences. How can we have peace even in anxiety-inducing times? Resolve our differences. Have you you ever been part of a conversation with people and they just start having a fight 
immediately in front of you. Never had that. You know, the conversation's going on really well, and then they start kind of having an argument in front of you, and it's like they it's like they forget that you're there. They you know they've forgotten that they're out in public, and all you want to do is just crawl into a hole, isn't it? You don't know you don't know where to look. You you start to look away. You you look down at your shoes. You you offer some quick prayers, just praying that the ground is going to envelop you and swallow you up. Now. Well, that kind of situation, thankfully, doesn't happen too often. When you think about it, that's often the way that we deal with conflict, though, isn't it? We take the ostrich approach. We close our eyes and pretend that it's not there. We, we look away. We, we pretend that everything's okay. Now, if you've ever tried that approach, the ostrich approach, you'll know that it doesn't really work, does it? It's definitely not a recipe for peace. We might pretend that there's no conflict, but the fact is our hearts and our minds know differently, don't they? They know the truth. In fact, I don't know about you, but I find when I take that approach, rather than reducing my anxiety, denying that the conflict is actually there, it actually, actually serves to inflame it. And the Apostle Paul confronts the ostrich approach here in verses 2 and 3. He says, no, that approach does not work. To be free of anxiety, we need to resolve our differences. Now, we don't actually know anything about Eurodia or Syntyche other than what we find here. But you know what? That actually doesn't matter. Because what we do know is all we need to know. Because here we have two sisters in Christ, two co-laborers in the gospel in disagreement, two women that had worked together in ministry who were now divided. It's all we know, and it's all we need to know. Back in chapter 2, verse 2, as he laid before the Philippians the example of Jesus, Paul urged them to be like-minded, having the same love, being one spirit and of one mind. And here he uses exactly the same words. It's no coincidence. Urging, pleading for these women to be of one mind in the Lord. What does it mean to be of one mind in the Lord? Well, we've seen that emerge throughout this epistle, haven't we? To be of one mind in the Lord is to remember that we are united together in gospel partnership because of the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. That the source, that the source of our unity, of our unity here at NBC, we're a motley bunch. It's, it's, it's not found in our preferences or the way we like doing things or our personal tastes. Now, our unity is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And that as the recipients of God's grace, we're to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and look first and foremost to the interests of others. Now, this disagreement must have been a fairly entrenched one for news of it to reach the Apostle Paul. Remember, Paul was in a Roman jail at this time. So it must have been a pretty 
serious disagreement for Paul to hear about it. We think he probably heard about it through Epaphroditus, but we're not sure. And perhaps, as can sometimes happen in big church disagreements, perhaps the members of the Philippian church had begun to take sides. And so we had two factions at play, the Eurodia faction and the Syntyche faction. But notice, Paul has absolutely no interest in that. He's not interested in taking sides. No, in fact, he places himself between these women and pleads with them to bury their differences. Friends, running away, pretending that everything's okay, leaving for another church, or even waiting for the person that you've got a disagreement with to leave before you come back, they are not biblical ways for managing disagreement. No, reconciliation is the only way to experience peace. At the end of verse 3, if you take a look there now, you'll see that Paul points out that the names of both of these women are written in the book of life. Do you see that there? These two women are going to be together and reconciled in heaven. And so Paul's making the point here, well, if you're going to be reconciled in heaven, why not be reconciled now? All of your differences are going to go away in glory, so why not put these things to death now? Friends, and this is something that we need to hear, the gospel needs to play out in every area of our life including the way we manage disagreements. There's no such thing as irreconcilable differences in the body of Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul says at the end of his letter to the Corinthian church. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Some common language there. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Do you see the common language there between these two passages? Strive for full restoration, Paul says. Be reconciled. Be of one mind. And what? Enjoy peace. Now notice, friends, there in verse 3, take a look there at Philippians 4, verse 3. Notwithstanding the, the responsibility of these women before God to reconcile, we, as the church family, have a joint responsibility to solve it. Do you remember we saw last week our joint responsibility to speak the truth in love to each other? To confront and challenge and encourage each other as disciples of Jesus? Well, it's the same common language here. When our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ have a conflict. We can't just turn away or look down at our shoes. No, we need to help them to solve it. And here we see Paul call on an unnamed co-worker to help them reconcile. That would have been a pretty uncomfortable role, wouldn't it? No one wants to be viewed as a troublemaker, a busybody getting involved in other people's arguments. Do you see here, Paul models for us, we all have a responsibility to carefully intervene 
and foster reconciliation in the body. Now, I just want to divert just for a moment. One of the, the common themes of pastoral ministry that I've discovered is that people will, and I'm not going to name anyone, so don't start to panic, but people will regularly come to you and will say, hey, this person hurt me in this way. And if you've had this conversation with me, you'll know that my default response is to hear, and say, Look, that, that must have been really, really hard. Have you spoken to them yet? Friends, that needs to be our response. Sorry, Cole, I'm just, I'm just looking at you right now. You know, Cole, 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 Cole and, and I might have had a disagreement over, over some particular matter. Sorry, brother, you're just there. You know, if I go and say to Ryan, Cole did this, and this is really frustrating me, Ryan's response, just like yours, needs to be, have you spoken to Colin about that? Because that's what we need to do. We need to be reconciled, otherwise we become little hot pots of anxiety and frustration and anger in the body of Christ. And you know why that's important? We saw this back in chapter 2 with our gospel witness. We saw it in 1 Peter. Gospel disunity affects our gospel witness. Our gospel witness is at stake, friends. Disunity destroys our witness to the reconciliation and the unity brought about by the gospel. So I want to challenge you today. Do you need to apply the gospel and reconcile with someone? Do you need to apply the gospel and reconcile with someone? Have you had similar conversations with others, perhaps, that I just described there, where you've expressed your frustration with someone else in the body, but you haven't sought to reconcile with them? Is there someone, maybe some people, that after the service you actively try to avoid? You try to make sure that, okay, if they're by the back door, that I'm not going to go out now. Let me give you another example. If there's a whole lot of people that suddenly come back to NBC the moment that Irene and I leave, and they say to you, the reason why we're coming is that we had a problem with Andrew. Please, my friends, you need to say to them, and this is on YouTube, you need to say to them, you need to call Andrew and Irene right now and talk to them because you need to be reconciled because you are united in the body of Christ. What a witness that is to our unity and reconciliation in the gospel. That not only do we have vertical reconciliation, but horizontal reconciliation as well. So I want to, that's the personal challenge. I want to take the corporate challenge too. Do you need to step into your responsibility and be that unnamed co-worker and help other people reconcile? Have you become aware of conflict and division somewhere in the body? Perhaps you've been a party to one of those conversations and God's stirring your heart this morning. Maybe you need to step into that breach, that uncomfortable, hard, scary, but bold breach, and help others be reconciled. Friends, the gospel has to play out in every area of our lives. Okay. Having just pointed these women to the hope and the restoration of the gospel, Paul goes on to our second point this morning, another prescription for peace. If you've got your sermon handout, you'll see it there. Rejoice in the closeness of God. How do we have joy 
even in the midst of anxiety-inducing situations. Rejoice in the closeness of God. Let's read verses 4 and 5 again. It was a while ago now that Kathy read that for us. Verses 4 and 5. Philippians 4, 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, present, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. For most of us, worrying and anxiety is almost second nature, isn't it? Rejoicing doesn't come as naturally. I know it certainly doesn't come as naturally to me. And that's, perhaps that's why the Apostle Paul repeats his call to us here. It's something that we need to hear twice, that we need to rejoice in the Lord. And I want you to notice that Paul doesn't just suggest this to us as an optional extra in the Christian life. Now, Paul commands us here not to worry, but he commands us here to rejoice in the goodness of God. So we've seen... Throughout this series, joy is to be the hallmark of believers. Our joy in Christ isn't temporary. It's not based on our circumstances. No, it's lasting because it's based on our relationship with Christ. That's how we can have joy even in isolation, even in suffering, even in conflict, in death, in exhaustion, as we've seen in this series. We can rejoice in the closeness of God. When we're anxious, there are often two broad ways we can respond, aren't there? They're they're quite well known to us. Fight or flight. And Paul warns us against the first of these options here. The fight option. We looked at flight just a moment ago. Don't take your tensions out on others, he says. No, let your gentleness be evident to all. The ESV translates it, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Friends, it's our gentleness, our moderation, not our combativeness that should be evident to all. It's our gentleness, even in hard times. It's our moderation, even in anxiety-inducing situations, not our combativeness that should be evident, evident in our church family, evident on our social media interactions, evident particularly to those that we disagree with, evident, in fact, to all of Nara. To be able to do that, for our gentleness, for our reasonableness to be evident to all, It requires perspective. It requires the ability to be able to distance ourselves from a situation and to see it from the big picture, to see it from the gospel perspective. And we do that by having the perspective that comes from from remembering. See there at the end of verse 5, that the Lord is near. How can we be gentle even when times are hard? How can we be reasonable rather than angry? 
We need to remember the Lord is near. The way that the Apostle Paul writes in the original language here makes it clear that he has two different time horizons in view. The first time horizon is in the here and now. We can be confident, even in anxiety-inducing situations, because the Lord is with us in the here and now. Jesus promised that he would be with us always, even to the very end of the age. We have the, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, living within us. You can't get any nearer than that. But there's also the future time horizon in view here. Because the day of the Lord, the end of all things, is near. The day is coming, Paul is pointing us to, when the righteous will be vindicated, when all things will be made right. And because that coming day is near, the present anxieties, the present stresses, the, the concerns of this world, they shouldn't affect us the same way. This perspective is what we need. And the closeness of the Lord naturally leads us to our next source of peace. This is our third key. Prayer. Prayer. I was reflecting on, on some of my prayer habits this week. And if I'm honest with you, as I try to be, I don't find it too hard to pray, to pray with joy and thanksgiving when things are going well. When the Lord has worked things out as he always does. When the skies are clear and it's all going okay. Then it's pretty easy to pray with joyful thanksgiving. But it's a lot harder when you're in the midst of the storm. When it feels like everything's gone pear-shaped. When the end looks doomed. But friends, that is when we need to pray. That's when we need to pray above all else. Verses 6 and 7 here contain both a most remarkable command and a promise. Let's take a look at the command first. Verse, verse 6. I inadvertently read this a bit earlier. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul says, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Friends, in every circumstance of life, we have the most profound privilege of pouring out our hearts to the God of the universe, sure that he will provide for our needs just as he's promised to. Lest we think that the Apostle Paul was some kind of first century Pollyanna, we need to, to realize that now, he was a man who knew tough times. He was a man who had suffered and endured for the gospel more than all of us combined. He knew about suffering and deprivation for the name of Jesus. But that had taught him, that experience, being shipwrecked and flogged and persecuted had taught him that God is willing and able to help. It had taught him that pouring out our hearts to God is the answer. Acknowledging our total dependence on him as we lay our requests before him. The American pastor, Sam Storms, explains really well what it is, what it is about prayer that makes it 
a particularly effective antidote to anxiety. And he says this, and I quote, Anxiety is rooted in self, while prayer is rooted in God. Anxiety is the fruit of a narrow, constricted view of life. The only thing you can see are the problems or perplexity surrounding you. Whereas prayer is the fruit of a broad and expansive view of life, in which God is so big that everything else, even our worst problems, shrink into insignificance. Anxiety, he says, is horizontal in focus. Prayer is vertical in focus. When you worry, you're consumed with looking to the left and the right, forward and backward. But when you pray, you can't help but look up. Anxiety never raises your eye above your problems, your situation, your circumstances. Whereas prayer raises your eyes above and beyond yourself to God and his power. Anxiety looks to self to solve problems. Prayer looks to God to endure problems. When you're anxious, your circumstances and problems control you. I think we can all identify with that. Your problems and circumstances have sovereignty over you. You invest in them a power and an authority to shape your life. But when you're prayerful, your circumstances shrink and are devoid of power to shape your life. Anxiety is concern over circumstances you can't control. Prayer is confidence in the God who controls your circumstances. And the last one. Anxiety is an expression of fear. Prayer is an expression of faith. End quote. Having called us to pray, as Sam has just showed us, Paul then goes on to show the effect that prayer has on us. Notice, he doesn't say that prayer is going to take away the problem. He doesn't say that it's all going to be rosy, but there is a much more miraculous promise there in verse 7. And the peace of God, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a promise. Those words are so familiar to us. I, I fear that we can lose the enormity of these words here. But as we submit our situation to God in prayer, he promises that he will guard our hearts and our minds. Just like the Roman guards that no doubt stood over Paul, God's peace will stand guard over us, enveloping us in a peace that transcends all understanding, a, a supernatural peace guarding us from the assaults of worry and fear. I know that many of you have experienced that for yourself. And it is a transcendent, supernatural peace, is it not? Let's take a look at one last key to joy, even in anxiety. It's a short one. It's there in verses 8 and 9. Think and act differently. How can we have joy even in anxious times? Think 
and act differently. All of us face the temptation to self-soothe and self-medicate when we're anxious, don't we? To, to turn to food, to drugs, to alcohol, to, to pleasure, to make us feel better, to ease our stress. But Paul says here, friends, the answer to those feelings of stress and fear and anxiety isn't found in porn, it's not found in food, and it's not found in a Netflix binge. No, it's found in godly thoughts and godly action. Verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Notice here that Paul calls us to intentionally focus on the good, to fill ourselves when we're anxious with good inputs. The encouragement of brothers and sisters in Christ, the prayer we've just seen, to fill ourselves, to turn to God's word rather than the TV, to fill ourselves with good inputs. But notice verse 9, and this is important, for, for the good inputs to actually ease our anxiety, they need to translate into action. There's a wonderful promise there in verse 9 that I think we actually often miss. If we actually put this into practice, we'll have peace. You know, there's no peace in disobedience. There's no peace in hearing God's word but ignoring it. Now that, that breeds anxiety. You know you're doing the wrong thing. But there is peace in knowing God's word, knowing what he's called you to, and putting it into action. As the old hymn puts it, and I love this, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy, I'm going to put joyful, in Jesus, but to trust and obey. My brothers and sisters, this is a message we need this week. God, in his grace, so amazingly offers us freedom from the worry and anxiety that's prevalent in our world. We can be freedom from angst in our present and the fear of the future my prayer that God by, by his spirit might empower that peace by being reconciled to each other by knowing the Lord's presence knowing his comfort through pet prayer and the joy of a transformed life shaped by Jesus I'm going to pray for us now that God by his spirit might do that work in us that we might know joy even in anxiety. Let me pray. Our God, we thank you that in your providence, this is the passage that you have for us to consider this morning. The fear and the anxiety and the concern of our world has been laid before our very eyes this week. And so, Lord, we see that we need your prescription for peace. 
We need your antidote to the fear and worry that can so overwhelm our hearts. So Lord, we pray that you might give us the boldness by your spirit to step into each of these four things. Help us not to be ostriches, but to bring about, to seek reconciliation and restoration with each other. To know your presence with us, both in the here and now and the nearness of that day when Christ will return, faith will be sight and all will be healed. To know and to lean on the comfort that can only come through prayer and the joy of a transformed life as our thoughts and our actions align under your word. Empower us by your spirit, we pray. Amen.